here in the 11FS office in WeWork Oldgate, London for episode 58 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Buying Frappuccinos with Bitcoin, Goldman Sachs considers a custody offering, I really wish that was custard offerings, Northern Trust opens its doors to cryptocurrency hedge funds. All this and more on today's show. I am not alone today. I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah Kachansky. Sarah Kachansky, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's nice to be back. We haven't done this together in a while. No, it feels like far too long. We should do this more. I, I dig it a lot. But we're also joined by the returning, the one and only, Tina Baker-Taylor. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Really, really well. All right. Uh, stop, collaborate, listen. It's time to talk about ICE. Um, ICE is back with a brand new exchange. So ICE, who are the owner of the New York Stock Exchange, made a groundbreaking announcement this past Friday, revealing that a new platform called Backed, B-A-K-K-T, uh, has been in, developed in partnership with some big names like Microsoft and Starbucks and the Boston Consulting Group. Apparently, they're going to integrate with the ICE U.S. futures market and clearinghouse to list a physically settled one-day-only Bitcoin futures product, complete with physical warehousing uh, now managed in-house by ICE. Uh, so institutional investors such as pension funds and endowments and insurance companies may be apparently a bit less hesitant to take a bet on Bitcoin, given ICE are well-known, they run the New York Stock Exchange, um, they're also doing physical settlement of uh, the Bitcoins themselves. So CoinFloor have been looking and talking about this for, for quite some time, Tina. Separate for me, A, futures markets, why are they important to institutions? And secondly, um, why is physical settlement versus cash settlement a thing and an important thing? Okay, well, from a physical versus cash, I'll take that first. It's important because of the ability to possibly manipulate a market. So if you have a cash-settled future, you have the ability to potentially change the price on a spot index, which then changes the price of the future. So if you have a huge future position, you can move the market your way and changes the price, obviously. And market manipulation has been one of the the big worries from the regulators for quite some time in this yeah. space. So by doing physical delivery, you effectively reduce that risk to almost zero. Indeed. Uh, why it's important for institutions. So institutions have been, as we know, waiting on the sidelines, interested in the asset class. We've heard that custody is an issue for them. So not quite sure how to bring in the asset into their balance sheet, how to custody it. I'm not interested in self-custodying it. So this gives them the opportunity to invest in the asset class without actually having Having to take delivery of it. Mm. So in CoinForce case, um, you are able to trade out of your physically delivered position and um, you can essentially convert it into a cash settlement, but that's after you've taken delivery of the, the Bitcoin itself. Yeah. So that I'm assuming will be similar in this case. They're not launching, I think, until November. So there's some things that still need to be worked out. I think what's more interesting about this in the institutional space is the one-day delivery. So that, to me, feels like it's pegged more against a retail investor, not necessarily an institutional one. Mm-hmm. You have less likelihood to take leverage. You're not really going to basis trade over one day. The mm-hmm. price isn't going to move enough. Mm-hmm. So to me, it almost looks like we're moving from an evolution of the cash settled future into the physically delivered future. So CoinFort was the first company to do that. Now into physical delivery, but for potentially a retail audience. Interesting that you think this is aimed at retail, um, and given... Uh, kind of 
the ICE's background that they do a good mix of stuff with the New York Stock Exchange. Obviously, they serve institutions and retail. Mm -hmm. Certainly, um, when we picked this story up at CCN, they thought it would be important because of institutions. Sarah, how do you feel about Bitcoin and uh, pension schemes? Yeah, I I mean, I couldn't comment on the retail versus institutional, but if you're going down the institutional route, I am not averse to the idea of it. Um, I think my perspective always has been on any kind of investment is that like diversity is key. You diversify your portfolio. Uh, and I I have no real idea whether, you know, Bitcoin is going to make me any more money than, you know, an X stock or a Y stock. And actually, I'll be honest with you, like most people in this country, I don't actually know what's in my pension. So, you know, I, I could go and look it up. I have a portal where I can go and like work out like where what's held where. But, um, you know, if it was, you know, 1% of my pension was in a crypto or even less, you know, 0.25% of my pension was sitting in a, a crypto fund, I wouldn't be averse to the idea. And I don't necessarily think that most people would either. And I think that portfolio thing is a really important point, right? In your uh, pension fund and in most funds generally that are managed on behalf of you know, sort of uh, at that level, you would expect a small percentage of it to be somewhat risky that's mm. going to deliver growth but also might deliver downside, whereas you know a lot of it's going to be insensible stuff. That 2 to 3% growth stuff, if this makes up a small part of that, well, that's not going to make a necessarily a scary impact, but it might make a bit of an impact that's worthwhile to the pension funds without necessarily you know, threatening anything, um, which I think is And I don't think, Sarah, you're unusual. I think most people, when they choose a pension, certainly in the US where they're talking about 401ks here, they'll give you a choice of, I am super risk averse or I have a huge risk appetite. And then they put it into a number of you know money market funds. So these funds are made up of lots of different types of things. And I can guarantee you that probably 99% of people have no idea what some of that stuff is. So exactly if that's your 2% of the risky stuff, does it matter? I mean, I think the, the only thing it would matter, it's just occurred to me, is that if it bumps up my fees. So the fees on pensions, now in the UK, they've just uh, set a cap on what they can, what a, what a big, so an Aviva or a Standard Life or anybody like that can charge you for a standard uh, pension fund. And I think it's not much more than 1.5%. The average fee is between 05 and 0.7% of your pension fund. You, you pay in fees to the person managing it for you. I wonder if the inclusion of crypto, it could go one of two ways, right? It could push those fees up or it could because it would enable huge volumes. You know, if everybody has 2% and there's X many people with a pension who have a pension with Aviva, it could do the other and, and, and force the fees down. I don't know I don't know enough about it. And it's interesting, will ICE and New York Stock Exchange build a good old classical centralised exchange here? And is this going against the values of what we originally thought was going to happen? There's, there's an interesting sort of political and philosophical question there. And they say they're going to be live in November. How realistic is that? I, I mean, how much of a head start it, do they have? That's, that's we exactly my question. So how far along are they? If they are six months into building out the platform, I think November is really reasonable. I think it's it's possible that they could deliver that. And for how many customers with uh, how much volume? There's a whole bunch of questions that you need to know the answer to. But I, I mean, I remember, and I've been a veteran of the fintech world, I remember sort of 10 years ago, you get all these telco uh, conglomerates coming together and saying, we're going to do mobile payments. And they signed all of these contracts, released all of these headlines, and then just never did. Uh, is this just a sign all the contracts and worry about execution later play is, is a really interesting question. Well, Jeff Spector's been doing quite a lot in this space, right? So so the ICE data feed, there is now a crypto data feed and CoinFloor sits within that feed amongst another 10 other exchanges. So he has been moving in this direction. I think he is incredibly pro-crypto. 
I would be surprised if it went away. But yes, will they deliver on November? And he is generally known as somebody who gets shit done as well. Like that's his, his kind of mo. I actually spoke to Jeff Bandman, who, uh, who I think you know pretty well, Tina, uh, who's a veteran, uh, you know, ex CFTC, uh, ex London Clearinghouse. Uh, really had some interesting perspectives on that. So let's hear from Jeff. Hi, uh, great, uh, great to be back here with you, uh, Simon. It's uh, Jeff Bandman, principal of Bandman Advisors. And uh, I'm really excited about this uh, big news coming out of ICE in the crypto space. ICE is one of the world's largest exchange clearinghouse and data groups. And they really uh, didn't appear to be doing anything in, in crypto or, or blockchain. And it turns out that they were working in secret for a year. And they came out at the end of last week with this massive announcement. So, Jeff, you mentioned that they've been working on this for almost a year. How remarkable is it that they might be able to launch this thing in November? Yeah, that that's really uh, quite remarkable. I think that they've, um, you know, they've announced uh, something that's a little bit different. Actually, quite quite a big bit different from the uh, uh, Bitcoin futures that were launched last December from CME and CBOE. The, the biggest difference is that these are going to be physically delivered. So uh, what that means uh, for those of, of the listeners who are not really versed in uh, futures speak, you know, uh, many futures contracts are cash settled, which means the value of the contract goes up and down based on an index. But the end, you don't actually deliver the index, you just deliver a sum in cash, in dollars or whatever currency the exchange and clearinghouse accept equal to the value of the gain or loss in the position. And in fact, most futures contracts are not even held till the end. Uh, most people close out of their positions uh, sooner than that, but, but nevertheless, you know, around 2 to 4% typically are, are held to expiry. Now, in the case of this new contract, uh, if you hold it to the end, if you're a buyer or a seller, then you are entitled to receive or you are required to deliver actual Bitcoin. So that's a big difference from the CME and CBOE contracts. What's also different about these, the way they've been described at least, is these will be one day, meaning that these contracts will exist. You'll be able to do it with respect to a single day. And you know, currently for the, for the contracts that exist, there's a settlement cycle every month. They're going to have to manage a settlement cycle every single day. Jeff, walk us through the impact this could have on institutions, consumers, and talk to me a little bit about custody. There are a lot of different pieces to, to what they've announced. There, there's the futures bit, and then there's the part that has implication for, if you will, the, the real economy and what you know, consumers like you and I do every day. And you know, I think that's part of what's gotten everybody's attention, that, you know, that this will sort of be the magic crossover moment when you can... Uh, buy your, uh, your coffee at Starbucks with a Bitcoin and Starbucks is in on it. Just um, the, the mechanics of getting this contract through, you know, I think it is a step further for the regulator and it will be exciting to see how they uh, handle it um, in, in, in two ways. First, uh, after the CME and CBOE futures, they developed some new procedures, that sort of a heightened review standard, uh, part of which includes making sure that the uh, exchange and clearinghouse that have proposed this have done a degree of public consultation with their consumer customers and stakeholders. So, you know, that'll be a new process. We'll see how that plays out. But, but the other thing that, that is, you know, one of the big challenges in the space that a lot of people have come on your show have talked about is custody. You know, how do you safeguard, you know, physical Bitcoin, both when it's, you know, physically, uh, you know, at rest, 
but also, uh, you know, what I like to call crypto in motion. You know, when people are doing things, things with it, and how do you safeguard it? And I think for, you know, for ICE to get this one through the regulators, they will need to demonstrate that the, that the safeguards are there, not only for themselves, but also for all the different market participants in the kind of trading and clearing ecosystem who might take delivery of that. So if they've got a solution for that that's, that's robust and can pass the regulators, you know, that's really, really big news. Currently, there's only one uh, clearinghouse that the, the CFTC has allowed to uh, do physical custody uh, of physical Bitcoin, and that's a group called uh, Ledger X that received approval last summer. So, you know, this is not without precedent, and I'm sure that the ICE people were looking carefully at you know, the Ledger X approval and, and what they did. And we're pointing to the fact that they can probably do the same thing as well or better. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Next story. Uh, it comes from Cointelegraph. Uh, I like this headline. No coffee for Bitcoin. Starbucks decides to clarify as media misrepresent its new crypto venture. Starbucks has clarified it will not be accepting Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies as payments. Customers will, quote, not be able to pay for Frappuccinos with Bitcoin. Are you disappointed, Sarah? Oh, hugely. So, the, I mean, this is this kind of links back to the previous story, right? The Starbucks are investors or, or partners in the backed uh, mm. project. And um, I guess, you know, we're talking about when it's going to be live. There's so many different elements to what they're trying to do. So one of the things they're trying to do is, you know, make it easier for, for people to, you know, these futures and settlement, whatever the other thing they're trying to do is make it easier for people to, you know, money into fiat, fiat back out, like, US dollars, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, fiat, whatever. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I used to work in the media, so I fully understand that these headlines happen. I don't think that anybody ever thought that would happen. I think anybody who has even a vague interest in this space knows how advanced Starbucks payment technology is and the how much money they sit on, on like their stored value cards and their apps and the idea of a token kind of makes sense to me there's kind of I, I kind of see why they might want to play here I kind of think the idea of a Starbucks token or something you know the Mook token which is a physical dime is ridiculous but the idea of a Starbucks token that they could use and whether that's somehow linked to this I could see that being a play out yeah, but I don't sure. think anybody ever thought that you were going to be able to pay for like four, $4.99 Frappuccino and Bitcoin <laughs> Starbucks is quietly the leading player in mobile payments in the US it's not Apple Pay it's not the banks it's not any of the tech companies it's Starbucks and and that therefore makes a lot of sense um, but they it's interesting to me number one they felt the need need to come out and say this isn't Bitcoin. Um, interesting that that must have been scaring some shareholders. I was just about to say, I well, bet that was share the, price. The Twitter sphere was uh, light with activity. But I also... Mean, um, there were the, definitely people that took the story quite seriously. I can imagine. Oh, my eyes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Twitter sphere is what it is. But it, the other piece is that um, after they've done this and, and felt the need to come out and say it, they've also found themselves really just kind of backing off from a position that many others had already backed away from. The Collison brothers from Stripe, for instance, did, a, did an interview on Bloomberg I saw last week where they said you know, they, they switched off the ability for merchants to accept Bitcoin because nobody was using it. Mm -hmm. And then if they saw data where people were using it, they'd mm -hmm. switch it back on. So the real problem that merchant acceptance with Bitcoin has got isn't that merchants don't want it. It's that nobody's using it for that. Yep. And, and it's, you know, it's just not functioning as that. Yeah, it's just too complicated right now, especially when you're talking about micro, what well, to Bitcoin micropayments. Like four four ninety nine is nothing if one Bitcoin is worth $8,000, right? Yes. So you're paying in point whatever X, whatever my math is terrible, 
of a Bitcoin for a coffee. It, it doesn't make sense. The economics it, don't make it, sense. It's confusing to understand from, yeah, if you were to denominate it in Bitcoin. And then mm-hmm. secondly, if you were to use Bitcoin as it stands today, pre-Lightning Network, you'd probably be paying oh, a seven, seven, yeah. $7 fee for, for a $3 sure. coffee. It just, yeah. it makes no sense. But um, we actually uh, used our B-Chain Insider Twitter account and asked them, you know, what's, what's exciting them? Is it going to be Starbucks and Microsoft and New York Stock Exchange? Is that going to be the sign of something big? And uh, I, we had four options. The four options were yes, because payments, yes, because institutions, no, because mayor, and then other. And uh, Did you write these? Uh, yes, maybe I wrote this poll. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. No, because meh is my new favourite <laughs> <like>, slogan. <laughs> no, because meh. Um, t-shirt coming soon. So 26% of the responders, I think we had just over 100 people respond, uh, said uh, yes, because payments. Uh, 39% said yes, because institutions. That's probably where I came down, which is like actually institutional investors bringing institutional capital into this may that not be what bit. the original Bitcoin dream was about. Um, it's not peer-to-peer digital cash, but it is interesting nonetheless and no because meh um good on those people and nine percent other we didn't we didn't get a sample of comments so uh, we'll have to find out what they thought we'll be running more polls this week so check out our b-chain insider twitter and get involved in the discussion because like we want to hear what you think and i just love doing snap polls i just yeah. I, I, I like quizzing the twitter sphere Alrighty, next story comes from ccn.com uh, how do you say the name of this exchange okx OKX. Yeah, I said it right. It initiates a clawback after the Bitcoin futures market is unable to cover a $420 million liquidation. Uh, so this, uh, they've moved to protect their futures market uh, with an injection of 2,500 Bitcoin after the insurance fund from its own capital, uh, after a false liquidation on the 31st of July, threatened to destabilize its operations. And this, <laughs> this statement, an enormous long position, BCC 0928, futures contract was false liquidated uh, due to the sheer size of our order our risk management system may be triggered to activate the societal loss risk management mechanism what the fuck is a societal loss risk management means, mechanism everybody trading on that platform is going to absorb some yeah. of the loss Every, somebody loses everybody loses somebody wins everybody wins it's crazy and this was why futures are gambling <laughs> well and so if you look at it they should never really have taken that large of a position in the first place. Add to that the amount of leverage that you're able to take on that particular exchange. Um, And then couple that with perhaps less than sound risk management policies um, when you have a recipe for disaster, right? So in one of the articles I read, they they did say something about that they had, I might be getting this wrong, but they had gone to the position holder and said, you probably should liquidate your position, but they didn't force it. So, um, you know, not to give a shout out to my company, but I will, our risk management system will automatically liquidate you if you come outside of a margin that's too wide. Yeah. Um, and this obviously didn't do that. Um, so they were cognizant of it for a period of time, and I think they just couldn't catch it in time. So one, they're taking a big loss but the loss is so big that yes everybody that's playing in the field is going to lose their ball it's absolutely leverage sounds great until you don't risk manage it and yeah this there's this great sort of caveat emptor bio beware sort of um anarchic view i think uh, amongst a lot of the early adopters of crypto that then 
come undone when stuff like this starts happening. It's like a poli- nobody like the whole like beer and bank you can't take my goddamn bitcoins thing falls apart when you're trading on leverage at an exchange and that exchange doesn't have good risk management. Correct. Exactly. And I think the effect of platform-wide socialized losses I would assume is going to lead to a breach in their customer trust. I mean, I don't know anybody at OKX, but I could imagine if that happened to us that would. But, you know, this just goes back to understanding what you're doing. Um, and ensuring that you're trading, you know, your your capital in a platform that is transparent. I just find it so baffling. I just double check this because this is, I mean, obviously futures are a thing and leverage is a thing and, you know, outside of the crypto markets. But like, how much of that was leverage versus how much money did they actually have? Because if you're going long, you're buying it, you expect it's going to go up. Mm-hmm. So it, this is kind of in, in, the, in the, the non-crypto markets, certainly in the UK, we've seen the regulators come down really, really hard on leverage, really hard and being like, you can't let somebody borrow, which they used to be able to do 100 times, you know, yeah. what they've already invested and then invest that again. And then their losses could be like magnified and magnified and magnified. So that kind of risk management, my brain's going... Who the hell, like how, how much money did they have and how did you not check that to start with? It's I, I, don't, I don't know for sure. Maybe you can check this. I think the maximum leverage on OKX futures is 20 times, but it's, it's still, pretty still significant. a lot. Yeah. That's yes. still pretty significant if you don't have good risk management in place. And risk management might simply be um, having margin calls at certain levels as you're going up the escalator and all these sorts of things. So like there are lots of stuff. Like I think there is a bit of like... Or we don't have the capital adequacy to take that position, no Thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, you can say no to a trade on the other side of a trade. Like, it's entirely possible. I, I So there is this, I think, uh, attitude of, well, you know, whatever came before, we don't want to learn from the old world of financial services. There's nothing we can possibly learn because financial crisis, they were stupid, which I think is probably not entirely accurate. And uh, stuff like this happening now when the space is still early is less of a risk but if this does go institutional as our first story suggests it's gonna then we're really gonna have to watch for stuff like this all right next story from forbes.com you've done some stuff on forbes lately forbes contributor right here sarah (laughs) yes not not on crypto but uh, yes i have Uh, this one's about northern trust uh who are one of the world's uh, larger uh, custodian banks they've opened their doors to cryptocurrency hedge funds as a part of a blockchain expansion uh so in addition to adding a number of blockchain features for managing its own private equity work Workflow. You probably saw so they're, they're looking at moving private equity workflow stuff onto Hyperledger, I believe it was. Northern Trust, who uh, currently manage more than $10.7 trillion of assets under custody and administration, have also opened up their fund admin services to a select group of hedge funds. So, Pete... Cheraherowich? Like, how do you say that name? I have no idea. Pete, I'm sorry I butchered your name, but apparently you're Brackett's president. You can take anything today. You can take movie rights. You can take all sorts of uh, entities, and you can create a token for those who's been with the company for 11 years. Uh, We have to be able to figure out how to hold those tokens, value those tokens, and do all of the things that custodians do. What do you think this means, um, that Northern Trust are getting into this space? They're a pretty meaty, you know, tier one global custodian bank again uh, for quite some time people are talking about the custodians are coming the custodians are coming well they're, they're coming here. yeah they're definitely here there's a lot of news about custody this week and last week I think one of the things that was interesting was they're talking about helping uh, hedge funds so mainstream hedge funds so they've kind of carved off a particular customer segment and they're looking at providing um, administrative services like assigning values to their investments assisting with AML um 
and compliance, so I'm assuming KYC, and uh, verifying the firm's third-party custodians, so kind of doing some counterparty risk management as well. So it seems a bit like they're coupling, you know, what a professional trader would do at scale with the custody elements that you would expect from a from a custodian but I'd like to know how are they assessing the values you know do, do they have some really crypto savvy experts that are doing this because we struggle with that and you know we look at the stuff all day long and how are they managing the KYC and AML like do they have some secret sauce no, I don't think they so, do I think what's happening here is you're seeing because they're facing off to institutions they're behaving in a lot of ways that those institutions would institutions expect. like what's familiar so yes. that doesn't surprise me even if it's not the cheapest most effective efficient and even uh, most data-driven and low-risk approach, they're still going to go for what they know. And uh, it's interesting to me that you know, a large custodian like this is much more used to dealing with key management. They're not going to say their answer for everything is cold storage when you know, a fund needs 50% of their liquidity to be available. There's a whole bunch of stuff that they can do and they have a track record in doing. And as we were just talking on the last story, a lot of their risk management is going to be figured out. But I've got a list from William Moyergar here of over 41 different companies that are moving into crypto custody. Everybody from... Uh, Zappo to Vault to even Swisscom, the uh, the Swiss uh, telco. Uh, you're seeing companies like My Crypto, My Ether Wallet, Ledger did something with Nomura, Gemini. Uh, there's a whole bunch of companies coming into this space. It's going to be a really interesting incumbent versus new entrant battle. And uh, let's see who wins. Yeah, the interesting thing for me is that they're not actually taking custody themselves. No, they're, they're just selling advising. software yeah. to and adjunct services yeah so it's kind of like i think it's it's an incredibly clever play because i know that custody is a big thing custody is a big thing with any kind of even when you look at fintechs and the guys who are like we don't need to have a license because we're paying somebody else to hold our funds that's effectively a custodian account like that's the same thing you have a stored value on your prepaid card and the the big bank holding it is your custodian so for me that's the most tangible examples for how that then translates into into the crypto markets but um, I think yeah I think it's a really good way of having like one foot in and one foot out if that makes sense so yeah. like we're not actually doing it so we're not going to be hurt that badly but we are selling some software that lets you play or we're providing you with services and it sounds really great in, in the article and the press release so you know it, it almost felt a little bit like once you kind of unpack it you kind of go oh so you're going to sell some supportive services around custody but are they actually going to take custody? I, I no, no. It, don't it, think they're so. not planning to right now. They're selling some fancy algorithms that will help you work out your and values this, and your positions and this things. This is dipping the toe in the water, isn't it? So I think there's a lot of larger organizations that can see real value in crypto that, that are at the front line. Whilst the, the CEO and the board level might not have got it, the people inside the big banks I think do have it and can absolutely see how they can add value. But they have to get their risk teams comfortable that you can move into this space. And I think initiatives um, like self-regulating organizations and you know certainly what a lot of what I hear through global digital finance is differing and different large institutions similar to Northern Trust saying you know that credibility of a shared rule set is going to be really helpful to um, to them moving in and it also speaks to the next story you know bloomberg.com apparently Goldman Sachs is considering a custody offering I don't know what considering means if somebody shared it over coffee once and somebody overheard this thing or whether it's true um, but this is from Bloomberg so uh, who knows apparently a formal offering from 
from Goldman Sachs would provide uh, credible backing for crypto funds and could pave the way for more investors to bet in the asset class. The spokesman said, in response to client interest in various digital products, we're exploring how best to serve them. At this point, we've not reached a conclusion. So basically, hey, um, we're game if you're game clients. Like this yep. is almost uh, like if you wanted to do it, come talk to us. Yep. All these things in banks, I don't know if Tina, you found this in your own career, but typically it's when enough people come and want to buy the thing that you can make money off managing the risk. Of then course. You can do it. Of course. Well, that's how CDO started. Let, yep. let me short the uh, mortgage market. We'll create that thing for you. So I think what we know is that institutions have absolutely zero desire to self-custody. Right. And I also am not quite sure how they're managing um, accounting for it on P&L. So they're, they're still trying to figure that all out. Additionally, if you're holding funds on behalf of other customers, then especially in the U.S., you have this you know approved custodian thing that you must have. Um, so we hear a lot about custody being the impediment for institutional investors to enter the market. I think that's a little bit of a red herring. I think that can be figured out. I think regulation... Well, regulation or regulatory clarity is probably a bigger impediment than than the custody itself. But these custody services or the talk of custody services, State Street has issued similar statements where they say we're interested in entering the market, but not yet quite saying how or when or what they're going to do are happening a lot. And if you look at comparatively somebody like Coinbase, who has come out with an institutional custodian product and has gone through getting the broker-dealer license and becoming that accredited custodian, they, I think, have even said that if the traditional legacy custodian bank, the big trusted Goliath of custody comes into the market, They'll just wipe everybody out because the legacy and the credibility are what people are looking for yeah. when you're handing over money for somebody to hold on to. Isn't it weird that this asset class that was created for trustlessness is looking for trust? Um, there is something kind of ironic there. Uh, but actually, as it's moving institutional, it makes you sort of say, well, then where is the value? What is the value? And I think the original thesis may be in need of an update. But the trustless uh, trust, that isn't, I think that is one of the key things that um, the the traditional market can't quite get their head around. So that's still them trying to put, well, if it's an asset, then we're going to put it over here in this box and we're going to treat it this way because we must treat assets this way. The whole idea that it is, uh, you know, permissioned and transparent and all of these other things seem to somehow escape them. That doesn't... Well, and, and, I think, and I think that's the thing. Sorry to cut across you, Tina. Mm. You're in full flow, but you really inspired me here, which is that sort of the fact that it's a global asset class that trades 24-7 around the clock, that's not locked into when your provider's open, It's these markets are global, that you do have that increased transparency and you can see what's happening in the market in a different way. But you've got a, a different uh, set of capabilities around privacy as well. You've got different set of capabilities around um, kind of inclusivity. So I do think you've got uh, this new, interesting, emerging set of properties that people have overlooked when they're looking at, well, actually, no, this is going to remake all of finance. Well, maybe it does, but maybe not in the way we thought it did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's still valid. From an institutional perspective, as I said earlier, they like what's familiar. So I think if you are creating a product to entice them in, at the moment, you need to make it look and walk and talk like something that they understand. And interestingly, I think one of the most interesting things I've heard about this is 
uh, big institutions will go to a crypto custodian and say, oh, okay, well, you know, it was fine, we'll hand over our money, whatever. And uh, then the custodian says, okay, well, there's going to be a fee of X. And they go, what do you mean there's a fee? Because in a fiat environment, they hand over the money and you hold it on deposit and you do whatever you're going to do with it as long as the money is there to get back to them when they ask for it. But crypto, this is a paid for service. Mm-hmm. And a lot of institutions are saying, well, we didn't, why would we pay for that? We don't pay for custody. Yeah. So there's a whole kind of shift around it. It's not really the same thing, guys. And I it's think that's be a really a important point. It's a really important point. I was just going to say that I think headlines like this was make me roll my eyes. I'm like, well, of course they're considering it. I mean, the point, if, as you just I'm said. I'm considering it, yeah, Sarah. Yeah, I'm I mean, considering <laughs> cake right now. <laughs> <laughs> but great. Well, we've that interesting, Simon. Uh, um, uh, but like, if you, but yeah, as you say, if Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs knows if they're the first ones to do it, they'll wipe the floor with everybody else because they're a globally recognized brand. So of course they're considering it, as are BlackRock, as are Barclays, as are everybody else. I mean, whether they actually do anything, is a whole other kettle of fish. Well, speaking of people doing something, blog.coinbase.com, Coinbase Custody is exploring a range of new assets. Interesting that they're looking at a number of assets for storage only, and they aim to add them quickly and as safely as possible. This includes EOS, uh, Dash, Neo, XRP, the famous XRP, the XRP army will be all over this one. So it's interesting that this makes it depository, not custody at this point. You know, it's... this is just a, a deposit box. It's almost like that the bank vault. You know, you mm-hmm. have the safety deposit box. That's really That's what it. we're doing here. What's the difference between depository and custody, please? Because I struggle with this. I'm hoping somebody can explain it. <laughs> there is a life cycle of events that happened around an asset that a custodian is the first line of defense to help you manage and look after. So if it's a security, it you know shares, they have a corporate action, they change who the board, uh, who's on the board, and they have to be involved in making sure those records get updated. If the owner changes, they change all of that sort of stuff. If um, if it's a bond and it has a, a, a coupon payment, then they would you know facilitate that transaction because they're they're holding the asset versus like a trustee. Yeah. Okay, right. So they're actually managing versus the, the asset. box in the wall where you turn the key and walk away. And it just Got it. That, and yeah, that's what a depository does. It's sitting there, and something happens, and it's like great that thing happened, but we don't care. We're, we're just a box in the wall. Great, right. great way of putting it. Which makes more sense for EOS then. <laughs> 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 yes, indeed. But let's look, get the EOS army angry at us now. There's uh, there's a lot of them as well. Uh, it's just, again, kind of speaks to the broader point. I think I want to just come back to that point though about uh, you know th- it's to me it feels like the Coinbase custody guys are sweeping up the larger family offices and that lower end of the hedge funds, and then your big institutions kind of come in from the top end, and it's a race to the middle. Like who, mm-hmm. who's who's going to win this one? I do happen to know that um, right now the funds in custody aren't linked to GDAC, so that's another thing they're they're not really movable across their platforms separate businesses, aren't they? they're Platform. absolutely separate businesses the way that i've heard someone at coinbase describe it is that coinbase custody is meant to be the bottom of the layer cake and it will be the business that supports all the other businesses so they originally envisioned that uh, custody the custody business would be the business that service the most amount of assets so this announcement isn't hugely surprising um, they're also talking about potentially adding a hot wallet to that which I think is a little little risky um, but to do that to increase speed to access so um, I'm I'm not surprised that they're adding these additional coins what I think is interesting is apparently one of the most requested coins for custody are their are privacy coins and they have said that they don't have the capability to take those on deposit 
So Zcashes of this world. Zcash, right? Monero, and Dash. Well, they've actually included Dash here, so that maybe means that Dash is no longer a privacy coin. Well, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um. So you know the the other thing I think that's interesting on this is how are they going to um, provide audit for the stuff that they've got in. Uh, in deposit. And the other interesting thing that I know is that everything is segregated. So it's segregated by customer, by coin, so that they can keep all of the securities separate from the non-securities. Well, yeah, looking after something that's on a proof of work chain versus a proof of stake chain. Indeed. You've got different attack vectors. You've got different types of keys. Yeah. You, I, I can completely see that. I can also see why this could become a very expensive and tricky business to run at some point. Well, they're also keeping segregation between retail and institutional. Mm-hmm. So this is the only institutional depository here. So they're not necessarily even able to fund from, you know, the lucrative retail business to kind of underpin this institutional business. So it really needs to be a self-sufficient operation. But you've got a group parent there or a wealthy parent that can keep that business running and uh, kind of look after it. Sorry, I was just looking at the full list of of, uh, ones that they're considering. And it's actually huge. And it does include Neo Monero Kick. And it says in big letters, these assets are only being considered by custody at this time. What's interesting to me is um, there's always this fine line between disclosures and uh, market um, kind of signaling. And uh, to me, I think Coinbase have tried to here at least to uh, be as be as more on the disclosure side as much as possible, um, and uh, kind of they're going to have say. You know, there's all of these disclosures coming out. I think that's generally a good development. But it strikes me as well that in the time since this announcement, since the um, Goldman thing, since the Northern Trust thing, in the time of the the ICE announcement, you know, the market's down maybe fifteen percent. Sarah and I were talking about that earlier. It is so baffling to see all of these huge announcements in the middle of a very bear market. Yeah. So I guess this is the build period or, you know, maybe it's mm. that everybody thought we were going to have a raging summer. I don't know. But frankly, though, I, I mean, as a personal opinion, I would prefer to see people doing stuff in the market be flat than the market be going great and nobody building anything. Mm-hmm. Like this is surely setting down the yeah. foundations of the market moving away from being just uh, speculation and into being something that it has use. Well, and also if you look at the pace, so when Coinbase custody was launched, and what are we talking, maybe six weeks since they you know, went live, the word was we're only going to custody the assets that we hold in GDAX. And now they've already expanded the list. And now they're looking at these 15, 20 other coins. So, you know, that was then, but this is now, and that was six weeks ago. So when they said, oh, we'll look at other coins in the future, the future was six weeks away. So things, I think, they're responsive to the market. Um, They're responsive to their customer demand. And personally, I think they have a a good product. So, I mean, I'd like to see this be successful. Here, here. Did anybody see as well that Robin Hood, uh, who are... Uh, kind of the mobile-only, uh, I guess, wealth manager and investments company based out of the U.S. Uh, ran about four million users, I think, at last check. Sarah have added Ethereum Classic as one of the uh, one of the coins you can hold in there as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, Robinhood. Uh, so what, what they specialize in is basically letting you direct your own investments. So whereas you look at something like uh, Wealth Simple or uh, Betterment, which are, as we talked about earlier, a bit like those if you like, those pension managers, they, they manage it for you and you, you set your risk level. The um, Robinhood allows you to do what you want with your money and just kind of like, if, if you make a mess of it, you make a mess of it, but it's not 
our fault. So I kind of think it doesn't surprise me that they would keep adding because they have huge demand for cryptocurrency trading from from their market, which is largely young men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there's no surprise there. Uh, and I, I think, you know, given given what they do and also it should be caveated that robin had do an awful lot around education as well and telling people how to invest and what's safe to invest and diversification and don't invest more than you can afford to lose and all that kind of stuff so if if that is providing a way into cryptocurrency investment for people who are a little bit unsure about it then it doesn't hurt as far as i can see and, and revolut do something similar in europe as well it's interesting to me that these uh, sort of fintech platforms uh, are meeting crypto it's almost like fintech insider is meeting blockchain insider <laughs> and this is in a loving it's going to be interesting to watch if they do go down that route of adding more and more cryptos in time and if that becomes the norm uh, you know certainly stats i've been looking at suggest that the overwhelming majority of the market is still retail um therefore you know, is what's driving that behavior? It's, is do retail just think there's nothing to be made for me in the old type of investing? You know, banks aren't out to to help me, and maybe I understand this stuff, or even it's just exciting. Yeah, I think there's all sorts of things too. I think exciting is one. There's definitely fashion. There's definitely trends. You mm-hmm. know, if all your mates are investing in Bitcoin, then you know you want to maybe have a go as well. I, I think absolutely that people of that generation who finally have a little bit of money and not a lot, but a little bit of money to play with investing, don't want to put it somewhere where the interest rate—I can't remember what it is in the US right now, but in the UK it's 075 percent—and actually most ISAs are only offering like 0.5 or whatever. Yeah, cash so, savings are still. And we talk about this all the time—the democratization of of investment, right? So if the investment sizes are smaller so can can you afford to go out and buy you know one share of of apple um, maybe you can't but you can afford to buy you know two or three coins that are that are new well, um, and what's interesting is i can't buy a fraction of a share of apple correct. i can buy a fractional share of a bitcoin there. i was getting there but i was doing it in a conversational <laughs> format tina <It's- laughs> But I think that's the key point, though, right? I mean, and, and there's also something to be said about securities laws creating a rule which said, if I have a certain amount of money, therefore I'm a sophisticated investor. I know there's more to it in terms of accreditation, but a large part of it was, well, if you can afford to lose the money, go ahead and knock yourself mm-hmm. out. What that actually means is that you or I can't even play in a small way. Even if I could afford to lose $100 a month, like if that was disposable income, I could afford to lose that. I can't buy the same product somebody else can buy. I'm locked out of the market just because I don't have a lot of money already. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a fundamental unfairness mm-hmm. that maybe these things start to address in a, in, in a certain way that we hadn't really considered. Yes, there's speculation, but also there's something more going on there as well that I think is important. All right, the next story, um, fortune.com. Uh, the future of blockchain, according to the CEO of the world's biggest crypto company. So by 2020, apparently, the CEO says we'll see broader use of blockchain-based messaging, games, social networks, and rating systems. The stage after that will be e-commerce. Apparently, none of the current contenders are poised for long-term success because they're too slow. He's uh, Whilst the criticism's long been leveled at Ethereum, he says any blockchain designed for general smart contracts, as the current competitors are, won't be enough. He said instead he thinks existing blockchains will seed the field to more specialized ones. Uh, he also adds in the interview that in developed markets, there's money to be made, but there's more regulation and it's saturated with competition. We don't want to compete with Coinbase and Gemini. That's the strategy here. There requires lots of lawyers and lobbying. Mm-hmm. Um, well, 
I don't think he wants much. So this is this is the CEO of Binance. Correct. Okay. Yeah, you kind of gave it away there, didn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, On that last bit. Point number one, isn't it interesting that he he sort of says, oh, regulation's hard, don't want any of that, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Well, there's a track record of that, though. So if you look at, in March, the Japanese regulator said, hey, we see that you're trying to move into Japan and you're not regulated, you don't have a license. And they said, oh, my bad. And they kind of decided not to set up a home office in Japan. And then... A couple months later, they went to Hong Kong. Um, and funny, they didn't have a license to operate there either. So I, I can see you know, them kind of moving around trying to find a home where they're going to be welcome. They seem to have found one in Malta, which is interesting because Malta is trying to vie for status around where a, a regional or a jurisdiction that is open to regulatory frameworks for crypto the key in that is that they're going to put together some framework for which to put, you know, crypto companies in some kind of compliance. So that doesn't necessarily seem like a match. You know, what's interesting to me then, if you go and read the Maltese law, which I've, I've, I'm about halfway through, and it's nowhere near as tasty as it sounds. Um, <laughs> that uh, Sorry, that was a joke for the British listeners. It's actually not as easy as you think it would. I mean, it's, no. it's pretty, a pretty high bar that you've got to pass. These, it is. It's, it's well put together. It's well thought it through. Is. And like all legislation, it carries a lot of kind of requirements on the organizations that are going to get through that legislation, some of which you know, I wouldn't say Binance are particularly strong in today as I observe their products. So it's interesting that the left hand and the right hand here. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably going to get into trouble for saying this. But when you look, so what basically he says, this, this gentleman who goes by CZ or CZ, depending on where you are in the world, he doesn't mind, which I quite liked the little nod to the British pronunciation and accent. So basically in both Malta and the US, the regulators are open to negotiations and discussions about how things are shaped up formed. But the insinuation is that the Maltese regulator is perhaps easier to shape, which if anybody knows anything about the Maltese government is not a surprise. I mean, there's the sensible point that there are far fewer regulators in Malta and it's very small. So like it's only one group of people to speak to. But also Malta has a reputation for being well, it's a hub for online gaming is where it mm-hmm. made a lot of its money. And now, you know, this seems to be the next big thing for it. But it has the Maltese government do have a reputation of being somewhat malleable when large companies and shall we say large companies with large pockets are concerned so i'm not necessarily suggesting that they would just be like okay come on in like you know nothing so crass as that but i i think that basically this guy is saying okay well we want somewhere where we can have more influence well, Malta definitely does have that reputation. And like other jurisdictions that have, you know, gained an equal type of reputation for the same types of things you're talking about with Malta, they have approached crypto very vocally as saying, you know, this is not like before. You know, this is going to be a, a very uh, strictly monitored regime. Um, we really want to be, you know, future focused. We're not just going to have people come. This isn't for show, essentially. But I agree with you. If that's the case, then to have one of your first entrants be you know somebody that does have some anonymous accounts right an email could be anyone i could be mickey mouse at hotmail.com and have an account um and their you know kyc and governance practices sometimes fall a bit short they don't 
always work. Well, and also, I don't know about you, but I, when I certainly signed up to Binance, I was allowed to put up to, and I didn't put anywhere near this amount, and it was a fraction, but you're allowed to put into up to two Bitcoin before you even identified yourself. Two Bitcoin, at the prices at the time, was nearly 20,000 US dollars. Okay, so it's still two Bitcoin, and that's a lot less money today, but... You tried depositing 20,000 US dollars into an anonymous account in a bank recently? Like Precisely. Uh, and, and yeah. so I think this is the challenge, and I think this is what draws the ire of regulators, which is, you know, like, if there's a better technology way to not invalidate somebody's privacy and still manage the risk that money has been laundered, I'm all for it. But at the same time, uh, you can see why regulators who are trying to prevent crime would see that and think, well, that doesn't help us in our mission. Yeah, I think Malta also is cognizant and has to be cognizant that it is part of the EU. And the EU, if it I mean, the EU is looking at Malta hard right now. It's doing that staring thing where it's like, mm, okay, really? Are you sure? The European Banking Authority actually gave Malta a solid kick, I think, four or five weeks ago around several other things. Well, I want to just point out some of his other points, though, sort of saying the existing blockchain platforms ain't shit. Like, there's going to be new ones that come along that are going to be more specialised. I think that's interesting. Don't know that that's the case. You know, the, the, there's nothing to say that they can't be evolved and there's something to be said for network effects. But you could have said uh, at one point MySpace had great network effects, right? Well, I also think, looking at this more broadly, what happens when the the regulators and, and policymakers are moving in the direction of of really collaborating with each other and putting in place not only jurisdictionally based frameworks, but collaborating with each other so that we're passporting some of this best practice from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? I truly believe that that is not miles off. You know, that is going to happen in you know, a few years time or sooner. And then when that institutional money has a choice to only trade in uh, regulated exchanges, what's going to happen to these other exchanges? They're going to lose a huge amount of their liquidity. Their liquidity goes and then what's left? Is it just going to be kind of the dodgy stuff? But if you go back to your thesis that securities laws made it hard for you and I and and the average person to get access to the, the exciting side of financial markets and growth, even if we were putting a small amount of money in, Um, Yes, there's a lot of money in institutions, but disruptive innovation by its nature serves the people that don't, you know, the underserved. It doesn't serve the existing served. So if institutional money does come in, maybe it doesn't benefit from it that much. And it's actually everybody outside the system, the underserved, that would continue to benefit. And organizations like Binance would be where the growth is. Something to think about. All right. um, Next story comes from Coindesk. Live Masters, the infamous, um, looks beyond finance for the next wave of blockchain growth, which is interesting timing. So according to Masters, there's a lot of pent-up demand for digital assets technology, uh, which the cloud-based DAML SDK, so this is their digital asset markup language, which is a specific language they built for smart contracts, uh, can start to meet a potential addressable market that's, quote, almost unmeasurable. I think there's some fair criticism that blockchain was a technology solution looking for a problem, but their approach has been to work with customers to identify the problem first and sometimes not to recommend DLT which is interesting. Referring to a new priority on developing a developer ecosystem, um, it's where they, quote, always intended to focus. We just didn't approach it via the same avenue as everybody else. This looks like a pivot by any other name to me. 
Yeah, I mean, it's because they were always kind of billed as the, as the people who, you know, did it sensibly and went after one client first and built something specific for one client so they could prove what they'd actually got something to show for it. Because mm-hmm. that's always one of the biggest problems these companies, right, is that yep. they sign up all these people. And as we mm-hmm. said, you don't have anything to show for it. Why bother with that? Why go through all the pain they've been through with the ASX and the, the battling the stakeholders and the years long battle to then decide they're not going to do stock markets after that? They do say that in addition to... Uh, healthcare and insurance sectors, digital media rights, royalty streams, real estate, so kind of the non-financial stuff, I suppose real estate could be financial, that they'll still be looking at uh, lending, collateral management within capital markets, derivative post-trade, securities post-trade, etc. So I don't think it's a complete pivot. I had a slightly different uh, perspective on this. I felt like they did go and get that one proof of concept. They have a paying customer. Um, Blythe is quoted in this article as saying this is what we always intended to do whether that's entirely true it might might be partially true maybe the truth is being massaged a little bit yeah but if you look at what they're doing so creating a developer ecosystem and focusing on being an enabler for others to build um, that is sorely lacking in this space we need more of that so I actually think, you know, even if it's a pivot, I still like it. And mm-hmm. and I want people to be building so that more people can prove that their idea is value additive. I, I'm all for that. Uh, so the interesting thing about digital asset is two things. One, they've got this concept of a global synchronization log, which um, really is about uh, how do I separate out the blockchain ordering piece, which is where are we at in a shared workflow and separate that from the smart contracts piece and have those two almost running independently of each other. So I've got this sync log that's got identities. I've got a sync log that's got um, transaction state information. And aside from that, I've got this this DAML platform that allows me to articulate financial agreements in a very specific way. Going back to even what the CEO of Binance said, what they've built is something that's specific to the needs of a market vertical that could potentially operate significantly faster. So it's almost like Blythe has answered the Binance CEO's question here with, with something, um, and somewhat ironically. Uh, but if you look at um, the consultation document that came from the ASX, uh, a lot of what they've actually decided to focus on has nothing to do with DLT. Um, so there's something interesting between the lines of what Blythe was saying is we often don't recommend um, DLT. Um, the priority changes for the ASX are, are an update to corporate actions, um, a number of delayed business as usual projects, a new customer identification number project, um, moving to ISO 20022 messaging. Like a lot of what they're focusing is, is going to be has nothing to do with DLT. Um, and replacing their chess with a post-trade solution you know, may or may not yet have DLT in it. Um, and so that, I think, is why this timing is interesting insofar as uh, there's definite value that developers are seeing. And, you know, from having worked with ASX so closely, they've really had to tool what they've built to uh, to solve a real problem. And now they've got it. They're saying to the market, hey, come look at these tools because we think they're pretty robust. Mm-hmm. Certainly my read of it anyways. Um, but maybe not everything needs DLT. Um, everything doesn't need DLT. I, th- I think that, you know, it, it's, ref- I mean, we it's say this all the, the time. But it is refreshing to hear people who, like, run these big companies say it as well. Because we all know that not everything needs a DLT or a blockchain. Like, everybody knows that. Um, but sometimes you just don't hear it from the people you'd like to hear it from. And I think hearing it from live masters is, is, is nice. It makes me feel slightly like the world hasn't gone completely insane. If I had a dollar for every person that came to me, they said, oh, listen to my idea and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to put them on the blockchain. And I say, 
tell me what the blockchain brings to this project that can't be done without it. Yeah. The the open, empty abyss of a non-answer. If I had a dollar for every single one of those times. I really think that what digital assets built around cross-organizational workflow is a real need inside um, institutions and corporates generally. Where you can't obviously centralize as well. So if you can obviously centralize around a body like the ASX, maybe it makes less sense than if you have something like uh, trade finance in which you, you know, where do you centralize world trade? Where do you centralize it in China? Do you centralize it in Europe uh, or the US? Uh, well, then each one of those is probably not going to be happy with one of those answers. So uh, being able to go across jurisdictional and geographic boundaries, maintaining state and continuing a workflow amongst peers, I think that's where DLT really comes into its own. Well, and I love this quote from her. She said, what I believe in is our technology. I don't mix philosophy or religion with technology. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I got I got a lot of time for Blythe. She's um, remarkably clear of thought and a lot of this stuff and an incredibly talented executive. All right, um, before we get to stories we didn't have time to cover, um, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is still brought to you by R3, our sponsor. And in July, they launched Corda Enterprise, which is a, uh, it's a commercial distribution of their platform called Corda. And they say it offers uh, privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. And something called a blockchain application firewall. We're going to have to get Richard Brown on the show to explain what that is, because I, I can't say I know the answer. But um, you can find out more at r3.com. And I think what's interesting, again, going back to the Binance CEO's comments is you know, people are shipping very specific, bespoke, industry problem-solving uh, blockchains um, that you know, really focus on the smart contract layer. Uh, I think people for too long have poo-pooed you know, what came out of the, um, the institutional side, and maybe, maybe that'll change. All right, stories we didn't have time to cover. Ledgerinsights.com, a Chinese bank issues blockchain pharma mortgages. Sounds like something you don't need blockchain for to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, distributed.com, IBM partners with Saudi Capital for blockchain-based government applications. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, $2 I've just earned. Coindesk.com, NFL player union strikes a deal to help athletes earn crypto. I liked the silence. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know when silence speaks volumes? Wow. Yeah, okay, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Okay, this tweet uh, comes from Bill Burden, who's at BTC Seminar on Twitter. He's quoting the CEO of ICE. People put more faith in a guy named Satoshi Nakamoto that nobody has ever met than they do in the U.S. Fed. Well, first of all, Satoshi is a woman. There's a T-shirt that says so. <laughs> we all have one. And I think the I saw this tweet when it came out, and I was going to comment on it, and then I just didn't. But, you know, you don't need to put faith in something if the math is sound. And so people trust Bitcoin because it's transparent and it's 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 proven it's maths, right? That seems obvious to you, but to the 50-something pension-holding, house-owning, policymaker, minister type, that seems really weird. Why would I f- trust this internet funny money that's only used to buy drugs? Um, and why would people in their early 20s want any of this stuff? Well, my favorite response, the, the tweet response was, we put our faith in an open source peer-reviewed, decentralized, borderless, immutable protocol, not influenced by power control, social status, or expose a nation's population to the volatility of centralized bank decisions and government policy. So that's why. Uh, well, my, my response was going to be, like, do they? Like, <laughs> some people do put more faith, but and others don't. 
but I imagine that the pop- the percentage of people who put their faith in the Fed, or actually, what about the group who trust neither? I think that's probably the biggest group here, actually, if we're going to talk about it. So there are there are definitely some people who do put more faith in Satoshi, but those people are kind of, they buy into the whole theory and the earlier religion and philosophy of it. So of, of course they put more faith in it. It just feels bizarre to me. It's like one of those things where I'm, I, you know, the analyst in me goes, you can't compare those two things. They are not the same. <laughs> I do think there's something to be said about not everybody who buys Bitcoin is a true believer. And in fact, probably most of them aren't. So it's not an either or. It's a, hey, this thing gained value. Probably a lot of them are speculators and punters and just trying to get the latest thing. However, is that a part of a macro trend away from your post-financial crisis Uh, where savings don't deliver anything, where financial literacy is low as well, and this thing looks exciting, there's a whole bunch of things that are probably driving people in that direction. Alrighty, um, well that's us for this week. Um, As a reminder, we're 11FS. Uh, We're a challenger consultancy who build financial services products. So if you want to get your business up to speed and deliver new products and services, drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com and please just subscribe to the damn show. Um, Tell some friends to listen to and and leave us a review. Uh, Tell us what you want to hear more of, less of, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, don't forget as well, we're taking this show live on the 26th of September at the London Olympia. Um, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for Blockchain Insider Live. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Tina, where can people find out more about you and Coinflow? Uh, you can find out more about Coinflow at www.coinflow.com or you can tweet me directly at, at Tina, T E A N A, Taylor on Twitter. Beautiful. Sarah? You can find me at Sarah Kachansky on Twitter or as someone pointed out you can find me on Forbes. Yes indeed. Branching out. Big piece about the OCC fintech charter that you just put up. Um, Might not mean what people think it means. Absolutely not. There is no utopia in the US guys. Uh, (laughs) There is. You just need all of the bitcoins and all of the guns. To buy frappuccinos. (laughs) (laughs) Oh god what a future. (laughs) Uh, Big thanks to our production team here at 11FS producer Petrit, uh, Laura and of course Holly our editor. Thank you so much and thank you for listening we'll have more blockchain inside next week goodbye